You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. So some of you guys, I, I share this story often with Chi Alpha because I'm actually kind of proud of my story. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to share it, specifically the story of Katie and I, uh, us first dating. We actually met at Chi Alpha. We, are, we spent three years going to LifePoint together here. Pastor Drew and, and Tanya, they recommended behind the scenes that I asked Katie out a bunch. Uh, and for whatever reason, I was foolish and I did not listen to them. And so for three years, I, I was just really good friends with Katie. I moved to Minneapolis, and after a year living in Minnesota uh, and going on dates with other girls who were great, uh, I realized at the end of that year that as I was going on these dates with these girls, nothing was working, nothing was, like, I, was, I wasn't really getting excited. I realized that there was one girl that I kept comparing all of these girls to, and that was, at the time, Katie Stuva. And uh, so I, it, was May, it was May of 2017. I was living in Minneapolis. She was living here in Ames. And I decided to give a friend a call to get a little, get a little bit of intel on what the situation was. Because in my heart, I decided, man, I would, I would just really like to take Katie on a date. So I called my friend and I asked her, hey, what's, what's going on? Like, what do you think? Is this a good idea? Should I ask her out? What's the situation? And much to my disappointment, Katie was talking to a different man. She was talking to a different guy, and I was so discouraged, and, and my friend was like, you know, she was really excited about the idea, but she's like, yeah, you know, she's talking to someone else, and, and so I got off the phone, and I began to tell my sob story to my parents, and to my, my friends, and my roommates, and my family, my cousins, and some of them, you know, a lot of them like, oh, yeah, that's such a bummer, because it really was. But when I talked to my parents, and maybe it's because they're a little more optimistic than me or more greedy than me, they're like, that's not your answer. She's not dating him yet. You should make a move. And for me, in my heart, that was scandalous. I was like, ah, you know, am I stepping on someone else's toes here? But, you know, what should I do? And I don't always listen to my parents, right? Like, like a lot of kids do. And so I didn't really, I didn't take their word for it. And so I kind of moved on. And as I told other people, I told my roommate Ryan. And my roommate Ryan was like, oh, bro, you got to go for it. You got to shoot your shot. And I, I talked to my sister, and she said the exact same thing. And so right around this time, my, my mind and my opinion switched. And I was like, okay, I think I should do this. Like, I, I think I, sh- I really should ask her out. And, uh, you know, I'll just, I'll put my cards out there. I'll, I'll show my hand. And if she wants, she's interested, she's interested. And eventually, I began to get really excited about it. And I worked up the courage. I was planning on calling her and asking her out. But before I did, there was one person that I had to make sure I talked to. One person whose approval, I wanted to, I wanted them to affirm what I was going to do. And that man was Pastor Drew Meyer. So I called Pastor Drew up, and I said, hey, Pastor Drew, what should I do? This is the situation. And he was very honest, and he, he said, I, you know, I, I, nothing's happened yet on their end, and so I think you just play your cards, and you have nothing to lose. And so... The story goes is that I called her up on June 12th, asked her out on June, June 15th. She called me back, and it took four days, but she did say yes. And now we are happily married, living in West Ames with two children, and it's been amazing. And we, I love my wife, and I love our story so much. But if I kind of rewind to that moment where I was calling Pastor Drew and kind of like look at my mentality in that moment, if I'm honest, I was so excited, I was so determined to call Katie and ask her out that if he didn't say what I wanted him to say, I probably still, as much as I respect Pastor Drew, I probably still would have done it. Because all I was doing 
was just calling him to get his affirmation. I just wanted him to affirm my preferences and my opinions. I wanted him to, to be a yes man for me. I wanted him to just say, oh yeah, that's great. You know, and thankfully he's more wise than that. He did give me a good, a good word, but he's more wise than just to be a yes man. But that attitude of desiring people's affirmation and it not really changing our opinions when we ask them what they think is common across humanity. It's, cro- it's common for all of us as people. If, you know, for a student, I remember in high school, I would have a, a hard day at school or I'd have an issue with a person at school. I'd come home and I would tell my mom about it and I would just complain and whine. And if I, my mom dared to give me advice on what I should do, she dared to say what I could do to fix it, I would reject it outright because all I wanted to do was just affirm what I was thinking, that I was, I was the victim, that I couldn't change my situation. And now, you know, now many of us who are married, uh, we probably do this with our spouses too. We have all of these things, and when we tell them what's going on, and we ask them what to do, we're not really asking them what we should do. We just want them to affirm our preconceived ideas, our opinions, and our preferences. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture where we see the the nation of Judah, the, the nation of Israel, which had been split into two, do almost the exact same thing. So we're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 42, and um, I was on a year-long Old Testament Bible reading plan, and this is where it came up, because I don't usually hang out with Jeremiah very often, um, but this is, when I read this, it shocked me. I had read Jeremiah before, uh, but th- the Lord really highlighted it to me, and so I'll provide some context as we go, because these Old Testament stories can kind of, you can get bogged down in the details, but at this time, in Jeremiah chapter 42, We're talking about God's chosen people. Now, God's chosen people originally were the nation of Israel through, established through the the man uh, and the patriarch Abraham. Now, after King Solomon, the the nation had split into two. The north half was Israel and the south half was was the nation of Judah. And north half Israel eventually fell. God's judgment was poured out upon it because they were really rebellious. They worshiped other gods. But the nation of Judah was a little bit better. They were a little bit more wanting to be obedient to God. And so they continued to be a nation. But eventually they too themselves turned to other gods and God's judgment was poured out upon them and their capital, Jerusalem, had fallen. And Jeremiah, the prophet, the reason why this book is so apocalyptic is he's the man of the hour. He is the one who's saying, hey, like if you want to survive, get out of Jerusalem. Like God's judgment is being poured out on the nation of Judah. Like get out of there. And so where we pick up in Jeremiah 42 is right after Jerusalem had fallen. And the people that are left, because the Assyrians had conquered Jerusalem, had taken many to their capital, the people that are left are called the remnant of Judah. The remnant of Judah. And so that's where we pick up the story in Jeremiah 42, verses 1 through 7. It says this. Then all the army's officers, and there's a lot of names here, so bear with me, including Johanan, son of Kariah, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, And all the people from the least to the greatest approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet, and I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God 
sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well for us, for we will obey the Lord our God. So here the remnant of Judah, they don't know what to do. The, the, the Jerusalem has fallen, the capital has fallen, the king has been taken into exile. And so they go to the man of the hour, Jeremiah, and they, they approach him and they say, what should we do? Should we stay here? Uh, should we go somewhere else? How should we respond to the situation that we find ourselves in? And they, they, they said, would you be willing to go to God on our behalf to ask? And Jeremiah's like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go to God on your behalf. And they said, okay, great. May the Lord be our witness. If we do not obey what he says through you, like we, we will do it. We will not disobey. The Lord can be our witness to this. And so I'm gonna paraphrase just for the sake of time. Jeremiah prays to the Lord and comes back and presents two options because he hears from God. And the two options are, are pretty clear. There's quite a bit of contrast between them. The first option is that the nation or the remnant of Judah should stay. They should stay in the land of Judah. And there the Lord will root them. He will build them up. He will protect them from the king of Babylon, as it says. He will make sure they are blessed and they prosper. Or they can leave and they can go to Egypt where famine and the sword and the sound of trumpets, all the things they're trying to flee from will follow them there. And there they will die. It's pretty, pretty stark contrast. Stay here, I'll bless you. You go there, you die. And remember, the, the remnant of Judah had said, we will do what the Lord our God says. And so what do you think the response was upon hearing what the prophet Jeremiah had said? Jeremiah chapter 43, verse two through seven, gives the response. And again, bear with me. There's a lot of names here, but we'll, we'll go right through it. It says this, Azariah, son of Hoshiah, Johanan, son of Kariah, and all the arrogant men. So you can already see what Jeremiah thinks of the men of Judah said to Jeremiah, you are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, you must not go to Egypt and settle there. But Baruch, who kind of is like Jeremiah's partner in crime, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so they may kill us and carry us into exile. So Johanan, son of Kariah, and all the army's officers, and all the people, and all the people, disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. And instead, Johanan, son of Kriah, and all the army officers led away the remnant of Judah who had come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations they had been scattered. They also led away those of the Nebuzaradan, I practiced that, commander of the imperial guard, left with Galadiah, and son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, the men, the women, the children, and the king's daughters. And get this, this is where it gets crazy. And they took Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch son of Neriah along with them. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tapanese. So their response to the request that they themselves made to hear from God from the prophet Jeremiah was, you are lying and you're, there's conspiracy here. You're colluding with Baruch to get us killed. And so we're not going to listen to you. We're going to take you, and we're going to kidnap you in Baruch, and we're going to bring you with us to the land of Egypt. That's what their response was upon hearing the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah. And so you can, you, we're not going to go there, but in Jeremiah 44, we kind of see what happens. They go to the land of Egypt, and they begin to worship the false gods 
of the land of Egypt. And eventually the canon of scripture and the canon of history is silent on the remnant of Judah. But we do know that the nation of Egypt eventually fell under the weight of the Assyrians just a few years later. And so we can presume that the remnant of Judah faded into history and they all died. They faced their consequences and judgment of what God had said was to come. But what blew my mind when I was reading this passage was they themselves went to Jeremiah and said, what will the Lord have us do? We, the Lord can be our witness. We will do whatever he says. We will not disobey. And when the word of God came, they rejected it. Do we do the same? Do we do the same? How do we treat the word of God in our lives? As Pastor Drew talked about last week in Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it penetrates to the dividing of the soul and spirit to the joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. When God's word comes to us, it's going to hurt sometimes. And so what do we do? Do we reject it? Do we lower our head and pretend that we didn't hear what God has said? Or do we let it change us, even when it hurts? Myself and Katie and Alejandra, we were uh, at a conference for Kyle a few months ago, and there was a, uh, a really fabulous Bible teacher there. Uh, and he asked us these two really basic questions that ch deeply challenged me. I want to ask them the same to you in light of how we respond to God's word. He asked us this one as pastors. He asked us this as ministers of God's word. He said, are we reading our Bibles just for comfort or are we allowing it to transform us? And guys, God's word is very comforting. Like, let's not, let's not, you know, discount that. Like, it is Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Like, he, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. But it also is, can be very cutting. And it's meant, as Hebrews 4, 12 says, to transform And a follow-up, in order for us to measure what we actually are doing when we respond to God's word, he asked us, this Bible teacher asked us, when was the last time God's word had changed our minds? When's the last time God's word had changed our minds? Or do we just only go to it to affirm what we already think? These questions are important to answer because I'm not, I'm not like up here this morning saying, Lord rebuke you, correct you. Like, that's not me. I'm not, that's not what I feel at all, what the Lord's trying to do in this moment. But we know that the Lord will correct us. We know that the Lord will discipline us. As I joke with some of my friends, because now I'm a, I'm a young father, in Hebrews 12, it says that we will be disciplined because we are not illegitimate children. Because he loves us, he will correct us. He will discipline us. This is something we should fully expect. And so what do we do when the correction and discipline comes? There was a time, and I got, I got this approved by my parents, so uh, don't tell on me. I think they might watch this later. Um, and I speak this out just so you know, my parents, I, I was thinking I could not have been raised in a better household. Like, I was treated so well. I was loved so well. I was disciplined extraordinarily well in a loving way. But there was this time when I was about seven years old. We were living in, in Tennessee, my grandparents, 
who were living in Wisconsin came down to visit for about a week. And while they were there, you know, I was a, I was, my parents never said I was a bad kid. They always just said I was a very energetic kid. And I, I mean, I did energy. I didn't know that. And, <laughs> and so they just said I had to be corralled. You know, I had to be kind of put into some good boundaries so that I would be a good kid. And so there was a time when my grandparents were there that I, I can't remember what I did, but I did something that was probably disrespectful, probably disobedient. And so they said I was going to get a SWAT. Like, I, that was going to happen. I was going to get a SWAT. And so I, I did the usual march to my parents' bedroom. I had lowered. I went in my parents' bedroom. My dad shut the door, and he, and he was about to discipline me. And I realized that I could take advantage of the situation. Because on the other side of the door were my grandparents, who are so tender and gentle and loving and sweet. And even though they swaddle their own kids, you know, they've gotten soft in their old age. And so... <laughs> So maybe I could work this out. And so I did everything you should never do when you're about to get SWAT. I clenched my cheeks. I arched my back. I screamed. I yelled. And I was asking my dad about this story last night because I remember it. He's like, I never touched you. But you were losing your mind like you were going to die. And, and so for a moment there, I, re- I saw kind of like the shock go across my dad's face because I never had done that before. I was a very good kid. And he relented. He, he didn't discipline me that moment. And, you know, I, I was excited. So I got to walk out there to my grandparents thinking that I had escaped discipline. And the, the week went by and my grandparents left. And eventually my mom came to me shortly after they left. And they, she said, hey, Alex, do you remember when you were supposed to get that, that swat that you didn't? That really disappointed dad. And so not only are you still going to get that swat, but you're going to lose TV for a full month. So I had thought I'd escaped discipline. I thought I'd escaped correction, but in fact, I invited something far, far worse into my life. And sometimes we think when we turn, we, we turn away from God's correction, we're escaping the correction for the moment. And I'm not saying God's going to bring more judgment, but his correction almost always will breathe, lead, like lead to freedom and actually give us a way out of more pain. And so by getting out of correction for a moment, we actually invite something far, far worse. And so what do we do? Do we reject God's loving discipline and correction through his word? Or do we do what I did? Arch our back, scream, try to get out of it. What do we do with God's word? (laughs) And what I've noticed over my life, and I'm sure you have as well, as I began to develop the practice of, of reading God's word daily, that it becomes very timely, like freakishly timely. timely. Like, like I don't know how it's, it's so accurate, but it's alive and active, and so it makes sense. And so there'll be times where I'm reading something that corrects what I was doing the very day before. And it was just my normal Bible reading plan that I was going through. What do we do? What do I do when God's timely word correctly applies itself to our lives in the form of discipline in a very timely way? How do we respond? What do we do when God's word tells us something about not sinning in anger the morning after we just blow up at our families? What do we do when God's word says to flee sexual immorality, yet we're watching our favorite TV show that's full of nudity and sexually explicit content? What do we do when God's word says to fix our thoughts on what is pure and noble and true, 
but our minds are consumed by politics, watching 24-7 news and being absorbed by the narratives of the day. What do we do when God's word says that we shouldn't put any other God before him, yet we spend copious amounts of time at the altar of entertainment? How do we respond to God's timely word in our life? I had the very unique opportunity several years ago to watch two separate friends work through, and about at the same time, God's definition of sexuality, what God's word said about sexuality. And I watched two separate stories play out in front of me. One was a friend who I had known really well in college. I, I, I met him really early on, and him and I, we became good friends. And um, he, man, this guy was, an, he was a spitfire. He loved Jesus. He would evangelize in front of me. I watched him share a message one time, phenomenal communicator. Like there are there people that now love Jesus because of my friend. I mean, it was amazing. And, and as college went on, he began to open up about his struggle with understanding God's definition of sexuality. And he actually had walked me through scripture, like him and I together, about why he believed what he perceived in God's word, which was Christian Orthodox, like definition of God's sexuality. And I mean, some of the things, even how I understand God's word, he taught me in that time period. But over the course of a few years, I watched as he began to bring his preferences instead of an obedient heart to God's word. I I watched as he began to bring what he wanted, God's word to affirm in his life, instead of allowing the word of God to cut and to do its transformative work. And so over a course of several years, I watched him begin to throw out some very important things. The inerrancy of God's word, God's authority in his word. He began to throw out the various tenets that we hold dear in traditional Christianity, and his life is not the same. He has walked away from what we would call traditional, fruitful, normal following of Jesus. And it's the, 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 I mean, the, the consequences of his sin, unfortunately, are all around him. But at the same time, I also saw another friend who was struggling with God's definition of sexuality. But his response was a little different. He, I mean, for a long time, he hid it. You know, his dad was one of those dads that said some really vile things about people behind closed doors. And he, would, he felt like, oh man, maybe I'm one of those people. But he began to allow God's word to cut. He began to allow it to do its transformative work. And I remember he began to open up to other guys around him about what he was struggling with in terms of God's definition of sexuality. And he began to let God's word transform his life and not bring his preferences or opinions or what he really wanted to God's word. And I watched him get set free. Over a course of several years, this man is now walking in freedom. He helps lead two separate ministries. He leads others in freedom. Like he is a dear friend. He actually, a few months ago, was telling me a story about how he had been supernaturally physically healed. There's fruitfulness in this guy's life because he allowed the word of God to cut and do its transformative work. He responded with obedience to the word of God. So what do we do? James 1, 22 through 25 says this, do not merely listen to the word of God and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it 
uh, what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues at it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. When we fail to respond to God's word, we are only deceiving ourselves. I, I was reading that and I was like, how have I missed that? Whenever we choose, just like when I thought I got out of that punishment, when I got out of that discipline of that swat from my dad, we are only deceiving ourselves when we don't apply God's word to our life. So how do we respond to God's word? How do we respond individually? And how do we respond corporately as a church? And I say this with like, Guys, behind the scenes, in terms of like pastoral staff meetings, our leaders are phenomenal. I love Pastor Drew. Like I, I have seen him be a man of integrity over a long period of time. So everything I'm about to say has, is not a commentary on our church. I'm very proud of our church, very thankful for our church. But there is a corporate response that's involved to responding to God's word. In Jeremiah 43, it says, or in 42, uh, 43, it says, all of God's people disobeyed the word of God. All of them. They corporately rebelled against God's word. And so what it seems like the remnant of Judah did when they went before Jeremiah, it's what it seems like they did when they went before him and said, hey, we'll listen to whatever God says. We will be obedient. It seems like they were just religiously posturing. They just put on a face. And so that trap exists for us too. It does. For us, for churches like ours, we could be tempted to just try to fine-tune the environment that we have on a Sunday morning for the most emotional experience possible. We could try to loudly and expressively show off our Holy Spirit-given gifts. We can get all excited during worship, jumping up and down, raising our hands, hooting and hollering, letting people know we're excited. We can even proselytize about how great our church is because we figured out the best way of doing church. All the while, only just spiritually posturing and rejecting God's word in our life. And when it finally comes down to it, when we hear the truth that calls out something in our lives, we just quietly back away. We ignore it. We move past it. And we say it's not for us. There's a trap for us that exists like the remnant of Judah. But there's another story that I'm gonna paraphrase out of the nation of Judah's history that brings us to a potentially different response. And that comes from 2 Chronicles 34 and 2 Kings 22 and 23, out of the lifetime of King Josiah. King Josiah inherited, and this is generations earlier from what we see in the remnant of Judah in Jeremiah 42. This is generations earlier. King Josiah, he inherited the throne at the age of eight years old. And from youth, scripture says, he sought the Lord. And in his 20s, he began to undergo a restoration and reparation of God's holy temple. And while they were doing the restoration work, the reparations on the temple, while they were purifying it, some of his servants found the book of the law. So, so we can assume that it had been disappeared. Like we can assume that it wasn't really there because they found it, it had to be lost. So they found the book of law. The servants brought the law to him and they said, King Josiah, this is what we found. And as it was read to him, he tore his clothes an indignation. And then he called together the elders of Judah. He called together the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he personally began to share 
God's word, the law, to the nation of Judah. He then began to make and renew a covenant before the people with God again. And in 2 Kings 23, we see his response to God's word really begin to take off. He went through the entire nation of Judah and tore down all the high places, defiled all the, the, the altars, and destroyed all the shrines to the false gods. He even went to the shrines. I didn't realize this, that, that King Solomon, his great ancestor, the one who oversaw Judah and uh, the nation of Israel at its heights, but established shrines to false gods. He went to those shrines and he destroyed them. With urgency, he responded in obedience to God's word. And as a result, God delayed judgment on the nation of Judah. Like the Jerusalem was gonna fall, God had predicted this was going to happen, but because of King Josiah's response to, his, to God's word, judgment was delayed. Do we respond to God's word like that? With urgency, with almost violence. I tell the young guys that I, I, I get to hang out with in Kyalpha that we need to be violent towards sin and anytime God's word corrects us in our life. And that's what King Josiah did. He, des I mean, the, this phrase, desecrating the high places, is what has been in my mind as I've been like meditating on this scripture. He went through the whole land. It says they actually, he, <laughs> this is brutal, he slaughtered the priests. He ground up their bones and burned it to defile those places. I mean, it was with such violence that he responded to God's word. He wanted so bad to be obedient to what God's word said, and he was blessed for it. The whole nation was blessed for it. Do we respond to God's word like that? There was once a church that my dad was on staff with, and I had called to make sure I had this story straight because I was young. But we were, it was a church that was, in some ways, could be similar to, to LifePoint. It was, a, it was a, a very Pentecostal church. At one point, I had actually really experienced a phenomenal move of God. They were from a denomination. They didn't really believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And God had poured out His Spirit so significantly that they had actually stepped out of the denomination to pursue what they felt like the Lord was doing. And man, it's like this church, they loved worship. Like it was wild and crazy charismatic. Some of the best musicians I've ever, ever seen, except for Scott and Tony, right? Like some of the best musicians I've ever seen. Phenomenal worship. They would get rowdy. They even, guys, check this out. They, when I remember when we moved there, they even had flags for the kids. They had adult flags and they had kids' flags. And so I get to wave a flag as a kid, you know, off of the front. It was awesome. And then, you know, people were laying on the ground all the time. So if I was tired, I'd just take a nap during worship. It was great. And I, I, I mean this with sincerity. There were people that loved Jesus there. Like they knew how to worship. But over the course of time, this church seemed to lose a little bit of its fruitfulness. Disorder among the gifts of the Holy Spirit began to arise. There was almost this like navel-gazing, self-oriented expression of church that came about in this church. And when, the, when a new pastor came, because uh, the old pastor had left, not for bad reasons, but he had just left, and the new pastor came, who was voted in by the board, some of the most prominent leaders got bitter, they got angry, and they left in division. And the church suffered a split. And it took decades for that church to recover. 
decades. And what came to, like, eventually you got to realize over the course of time is that many of these prominent leaders and many of these prominent families that were in this church, they put on a great show on Sundays, but they didn't really respond to God's word. And their lives and their families fell apart before all of us. Again, that trap exists for us too. Church people, including myself, can be just like the remnant of Judah before Jeremiah, singing, Lord, have your way in worship. Sing on earth as it is in heaven, shouting all the glory, all the power, all the honor is yours. Yet when it comes time to be obedient to God's word, we let rebellion creep into our hearts. And when the Lord himself speaks to us about something he wants to correct that we hold near and dear, it hurts just a little too much. And we lower our head and we pretend we didn't hear him. And anytime we hear God's word and we don't do it, we only deceive ourselves. And so my prayer this morning for LifePoint Church is that we would draw great contrast to that. Great contrast to that. That not only will be people who hear the word of God, but we do the word of God. It says as you intently look at the word of God, the law that actually brings freedom, you will be blessed in all that you do. That we would be people that we as a church and we as individuals and we as families be people who inherit the blessing of God from applying the word of God to our lives. That we would be like King Josiah who when God's word, as it always will, points out the error in our ways, we tear our clothes in indignation and we repent. And what I, like this, this one of the sense was rolling around my head this week. Man, I pray that we wouldn't be a bunch of weak men and women who leave high places undesecrated, who leave shrines undefiled in our life that are remnants of the old flesh. Instead, before our families, before our youth and our young people, we go to those places in our lives and we defile them. We tear down the high places, we tear down the altars, and we show our radical obedience to God's word. blessed when we obey God's word. And guys, please hear me. I love our environment here. Again, I love our, like everything about life point I'm so proud of. Like I, 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 there's something so sweet that God is doing here, but we must be people. We must be people. We must be people who obey and respond to God's word. I'm going to invite the worship team up. I want to um, share another story. I know I'm sharing a lot of stories. Um, my parents, they really encountered the Lord and kind of came of age in the late 80s and early 90s. And um, they, they tell me stories of the churches they're part of, the things they're doing that, like God was working wonders. God was doing miracles in their midst. I mean, there's things that they say that I'm like, Lord, do that in our day. <laughs> like, do that in our day. I want to see that happen. I want to see those kind of salvations. I want to see those kind of miracles. And they talk about their friends from that, th those days and how dear they were and how the community they got to be a part of. But as we look at the lives, and this is not coming from pride, this is not coming from, from a place of like thinking that we're better, but as we look at the lives of many of their friends and those families that were first started in that, in that era, and how the story has played out from those wild and crazy Pentecostal movements, it's littered with casualties. It's littered with families that split apart, families that there was infidelity, substance abuse, drug abuse, uh, even, even suicide, like, why, like horrible, painful things that happened. And it's almost, you look around, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but you look around, you're like, who's, who's left? But there was one family that I got the pleasure 
of being in very close relationship who's left. And there's more than that, but one who I got to see in a very intimate way. This family who, who was a part of what God did then and stayed faithful through the generations, literally the generations. This is my, my, my aunt and uncle, Kristen Bruce Rouser. My aunt is this short little feisty woman who's like a lion and you don't want to get on her bad side. And my uncle is this giant Swedish man uh, and he was a carpenter and a, a bivocational pastor. And they had six kids and adopted a seventh. And I remember getting to spend tons of time with them as a kid because their, their kids were close to my, uh, you know, to my age. And so some of my dearest friends and almost brothers like are, are, are from that family. But I remember spending the nights at their houses and, and I'd wake up in the morning or I remember one time I woke up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It's like 4.30, 5 o'clock. And here my uncle is sitting at the kitchen table, pouring over God's word before he goes to work at 6 a.m. Like studying, allowing it to transform his life. And here I saw before me was a family who, like, and had parents that desired God's words to have its effect in every part of the family. Now they have their flaws. Like they have their quirks for sure. But now, generations later, I spend the night at their kid's house. And when I wake up in the morning, what do I find? I find my cousins pouring over God's word early in the morning at the kitchen. It's like, it's their thing. It's at the kitchen table with this spiral notebook. Then they read and they write and they read and they write. And the, guys, my aunt and uncle ran the board with those kids. They all love Jesus. Like, I mean, it's crazy. That normally there's a prodigal one or two. Like that's normal what happens. They ran the table and they all love Jesus. Their family is so fruitful. But they responded to God's word faithfully, faithfully throughout their life, even when it hurts, even when it was awkward. They responded to God's word. And I pray and believe that that can be the story for, for all of us in this place. That can be the story for all of our families, for all of the places that we go in the future, for the households we have. One thing I want to remind us of before we close is when we talk about God's word, we're not talking about responding to words on a page. We're not talking about responding and getting emotional about some chapters in a book. We're not talking about some systematic theology that we get excited about or some religious code or moral concepts that we get to grasp. We're talking about responding to the words of Jesus. When we respond to the word of God, we're responding to a person, the Lord, to the one who's called, as Drew talked about on Friday night, faithful and true. When we respond to God's word, we're responding to one who loves us. God's word is written, man, it's not written to bind us or to box us in. It's meant to give us life and freedom and liberty. And in fact, it's actually only by the grace of Jesus that we have the liberty to respond to God's word. And so when we respond to God's word, we were responding not to some religious like theocracy or, or institution that we are inheriting, but to Jesus himself. We're responding to a person. And when we show obedience to him, we're showing obedience to a loving and grace-filled father who only desires the best, who only longs for us to have fruitful lives and to love him and experience his grace and his peace and his mercy. And so this morning, before we move on, I want to 
give an opportunity for anyone here who wants to respond to the, the liberty that Jesus shows through his written word of God and has been experienced by many of us in this room. Scripture says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he's raised from the dead, we will be saved. There's this great acquittal that comes from our sin and the penalty that we deserve when we respond to the word of God by responding to Jesus. And that liberty only comes, that freedom, that acquittal only comes because of the man, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who was nailed to the cross on that, that hill in Israel. And so this morning, if there's anyone in here that wants to respond to Jesus and surrender their life to him, to experience this liberty from sin, to experience this liberty from their old ways, and to step into new life with God under repentance for what they've done and submission to him as king, would you raise your hand? I just wanna pray for you. Is there anyone in here? that wants to surrender life to Jesus. I'm not gonna call you forward, I just wanna pray for you. If you're on the, if you're joining us online, there's gonna be a number that pops up on the screen. And this message, this call is for you as well. Jesus bought you liberty. His words bring freedom. And he wants you to experience it. And so if you want to respond to Jesus this morning, please text the number below. We'd love to pray for you and pray with you. But this morning, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up. And I just want to pray for us as a church. And then we're going to go to a, a song. Uh, Scott's going to lead us. And I, what I, I would encourage you to do as we go into the song worship is begin to ask the Lord, what high place do I need to tear down? What place has your word corrected me in my life that I have not yet responded to. If we don't respond to, we're only deceiving ourselves. We're only inviting further pain. We're only inviting further grief and suffering. But this morning, there's an opportunity for every one of us to respond to God's word, which is meant to bring freedom and blessing to our life. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.